Blog Talk Radio. All the spot analysis. Am I crazy? Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Are we on a podcast? Yeah. Uh, I think I'm going to come get some. If you want some, come. Gotta get that. Gotta get that. Gotta get it. Oh. My Appreciate favorite, though. Am I? You're my favorite. Oh, thank you yeah. so much. I think I, not. You put me on the e-meter and ask me a question and the needle would float. Day 71 of Come Get Some. I am your host on Twitter, Miami Six Man, or at CGS here for the show. You can email, give feedback, and all that good stuff using CGS here at gmail.com. Uh, of course, you can go on to Blog Talk Radio and uh, find my podcast and subscribe. And you can subscribe on iTunes and various other places. Just look up Come Get Some, S U M, and uh, you'll find uh, me all over the place, which is really great. Um, wow, a lot going on this week. Uh, today is about Scott Brown. He's an independent uh, movie maker, creator, writer, uh, all of the above. He's got a writing project I want you guys to remember uh, to look into, especially if you're writers. If you're trying to create something and you want to get it out there, you can go to the IndieVisionProject.com and uh, and uh, enter the contest he's got going for that, and you can make something happen for yourself. Uh, look at the links on the description of the podcast for that, and know that uh, time is running out. The only reason I bring this up now at the forefront of the show is because uh, today's a little longer episode, but next week's when we actually start talking about it. But time's running out on the contest, so get into it. Check it out. At least look into it. See if it's for you. Of course, information about that also can be found on MaxitMagazine.com, which is run by Pushing the Pen, which is, of course, my guest today, Scott Brown. He's a great guest, by the way. So I hope you enjoy today's show. But before we get to Scott, uh, I want to address the uh, the miraculous occurrence in the room. In fact, it happened in my car, actually. Um, this is a true story, 100% accurate and true, and, and I'm not making any of this up uh, uh, for real. Uh, I was driving. I was driving this morning. I dropped my daughter off at school, and I didn't really think to do this. you know. I glanced down at the speedometer. Yeah, this is true. This is true. I glanced at a speedometer and uh, can't make this up. Uh, the needle was floating. No, I'm, I'm not saying it means anything. I mean, it doesn't mean anything, but the needle was floating. Uh, speaking. <laughs> so anyway, uh, speaking of Scientology, which that was a, a joke was a reference to, is um, tomorrow is my Scientology extra episode. Uh, and uh, I've got a lot of venting to do, so make sure you come back tomorrow for my venting. Uh, between Kirstie Alley and just the last 24 hours, Stacey Francis' bullshit, uh, the bullshit of some independent Scientologists running their mouths on social media, uh, and, and the destruction that's happening there, the destructive behavior happening there anyway, and uh, how we need to sort of back away from that a little bit. And uh, also the meeting that... Uh, that Clearwater, the city of Clearwater had with the city council about the potential of Scientology buying property in Clearwater. All of this had things that happened within them that really sparked uh, my ire a little bit and got me to the point to where I really have a lot of venting to do. And if you want to hear me vent on this, 
Make sure you come uh, listen to the show tomorrow. Uh, more on that at the end of today's show, so stay tuned. You'll get a preview for next week's show and for tomorrow's show. Uh, you won't want to miss it or a second of today's show. And before I get on with Scott also, I want to say Kathy Shankelberg's uh, tour of Chicago for the second time around went fantastic from all accounts that I'm hearing. And uh, she'll be in Tampa at the end of this coming week. On Friday the 31st, I will be attending uh, Squeeze My Cans in Tampa. And I'll also be, uh, if you're going to look for me in a large crowd of people that could needle in a haystack, I'll be at WrestleMania Access on Saturday. And I'll be at WrestleMania Sunday at Camping World uh, Arena. I'll be sending lots of pictures out to, I, I have this uh, vacant Instagram. I put no pictures on. So I'll be posting pictures on Instagram, on my Twitter account, and on Facebook so you all get to see the good time that I'm having and you're not. So check it out if you're in the Tampa area, of course, especially uh, this coming weekend. Uh, uh, not this weekend, but next uh, weekend coming up. Make sure you catch Squeeze My Cans. I'm sure uh, you're not going to be disappointed. Uh, in the meantime, here it is, Scott Brown, part one. Uh, all right, my guest today for the pen and Maxit Magazine, uh, in the movie, uh, director, writer, producer, helper, <laughs> mentor, uh, Scott Brown. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Chris. Did I get all those things right? <laughs> Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Did I get that all right? Uh, yeah, that's about right. It's um, That's pretty much what I do. All right. So as you know, Scott, what I do here on the show is I get to the sum of all my guests here. And uh, so so I want to kind of go back all the way. Um, you have an interesting story how you got to be a writer. And uh, I was actually just looking at that a couple minutes ago. Uh, you had like a life-changing event that led to this? Uh, yeah, actually... Um, well, it's, I was a ghostwriter prior to that event, um, but nothing in my name. It wasn't until I had a random stranger, uh, give me traumatic brain injury, um, that I actually stopped ghostwriting and started writing under my own name. And, uh, total random attack in Laguna Beach, actually, um, of all places. Yeah. So I had to relearn English. I had to relearn how to write speak, um, a lot of things, three and a half years of physical therapy, it was, it was, a pretty, uh, impactful, but it made me realize my mortality and that I had no legacy to leave my daughter, even though I was successful at what I was doing, I, it wasn't my name attached to it, it was always other people's names attached to the success of the projects, so I realized that if I was going to step up the game, it's, I, it was, if my name wasn't on it, I wasn't working on it. So since then, I've sold 36 screenplays. I've I've launched Maxit Magazine. I've launched the Indie Vision Project, and my production company is growing by leaps and bounds. And we just launched the Indie Vision Screenwriting and Directing Competition uh, with two production deals on the line because of the success of just putting my name out there and the people that I've worked with in the past saying, hey, I want to be a part of this. I've loved working with you in the past. Let's now make it happen. So I've, I've found a real solid base of support through others that understand my vision and that, and including Stan Houston, Michael Montgomery, yeah. and many others. 
Yeah, I was just speaking to Michael Montgomery uh, a couple weeks ago here on this show. He seemed really excited to be a part of this project. Um, I, I want to come back to the project because I want—I have some questions about the ghostwriting. How does that work? Because it does seem like it's a thankless job. Uh, how do you end up as a ghostwriter on things? Is this a step? Is this a way to get your foot stepped in the door, or what? what, what ha- what's happening there? Um, it it can be, but honestly, it's I would recommend I wouldn't recommend ghostwriting unless you have some real chops at writing. Um, I would recommend starting out as a copywriter, if anything else. It pays the bills, plus it puts your name on stuff. You can get some columns done. And but ghostwriting, it's it started out. I was working at a newspaper. Um, as a production assistant, and then I transitioned into writing. That's where I got my first start actually professionally writing. But a friend of mine knew I could write, and he uh, asked if I would take a look at this guy's script. And I had told him, I don't know anything about script writing. And he goes, just t- you know, story structure and that, just take a look at it and see if you see the issue, because nobody seems to be able to find it. And I looked it over. It took me about 20 minutes, and it was a episode for a TV show. And I saw it's I have an ability to see the issues real quick. And it was it, to me, it wasn't a big deal to fix it. I sent it to him, um, sent it back to the guy, and then about two weeks later, I ended up getting an envelope in the mail with a bunch of cash in it. I was like, hey, this is nice. Yeah. And then he had me do it. some more work for him. And then the word kind of spread, and it was, I didn't even intend to become a ghostwriter. I didn't even know anything about, even though I'd been acting and working in the industry in general, I didn't understand the credits and things like that side for the writers and that, and when you're working under other writers. And I didn't realize that a lot of ghostwriters aren't supposed to be working under writers. It's against their contracts. Hmm. So I ended up working on several hundred projects for a lot of well-known writers in that in the industry and producers and that, that and it paid very well. My top, I, my worst year was 60K. My best year was three-quarters of a million wow. on the writing side. And no one could so, ever know. Yeah, and no one knew. It was a case of... And when I launched into writing under my own name, it actually alienated me from a lot of these guys because they realized I was their direct competition because I was the one that had been making them successful, myself and a few other writers like me. Does that uh, cause any kind of friction to put you kind of behind the eight ball in the industry? Does that make it hard for you? Oh, big time for the first little while. And then they realized that I wasn't competing with them. If I wanted to shut them down, I could shut them down on my ability, but they were already locked in on projects and shows and things like that. I wasn't chasing their revenue. I was chasing my own stories. I was chasing other people's stories. I was filling a gap that they weren't even interested in. So, and that's so what a lot of people didn't understand until it started catching on what I was actually doing. And that's that was the Indivision aspect of it. I got you. So if you were going to put something on network TV, then you would be direct competition, but you're not doing that kind of thing. You're, 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 you started this whole indie movement. Yeah, it's I've transitioned into bringing indie as a mainstream format. That's what I'm working on. To make it, even though we shoot lower budgets, things like that, we shoot extremely high-quality content. That's the focus. We can go head-to-head with any studio project 
of similar caliber and similar budget and shoot well above because we're not tied down by their their bulk crew and things like this, but we're still dealing with the same talent and everything else. Yeah, for instance, so you mentioned... We've had a lot of luck. Go ahead. Yeah, we've had a lot of luck. Our first two projects we shot for a combined budget of less than 50K, both features, and their valuation is $1.1 million. Now, there's a reason for this now. And uh, be- before I get into the reason for that, so you mentioned, uh, I was going to say before, uh, Stan Houston. He's a guy that's been in some, you know, in some films worth mentioning, not not to say the least. Uh, what was the one with uh, about uh, Martin Selma. Luther King? Selma, yeah. And I watched that, Selma's and he was one. good. He was USF good in that. Indianapolis um, and a bunch of others. Yeah, he's I, he's be- and he got in the industry late in the game, and he's already becoming a major player. I definitely see it. I definitely, he's a good guy. I like him. But we uh, we communicate yeah, once he, in a while. He, yeah, he's quite amazing in what he's doing and, and trying. And it, it, when he said that he wanted to work with me, it was pretty impressive. Um, because I told him what the budgets were, and he goes, it, that's not the point. I like what you're doing. I like how you're changing the industry. And the difference between my projects and most others is that we have actually a pro- We go back to the old 1920s style studio format in which we actually share the profits with the cast and crew. Anybody that works on our projects gets points for perpetuity. The investor takes a little less, we take a little less, we carry the bulk of the load, and and everybody from the PA to the lead gets a point in the project. There's value in that process. It makes a real difference. There's value in that process. As long as you have everybody on the same page, and I imagine you have to have everybody on the same page, this is a fair arrangement for everybody. Nobody, you know, there's not no need for union interference or anything because what you're looking at is if you put out a movie, if I'm getting this right, and this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier, you said it there, if, if I do a big-budget film and I get a, a studio to pay $3 million or $13 billion to make the movie and the movie makes $3 million, well, I've already paid the actors and the staff, and I'm, and I'm in the hole, and the studio is right. in the hole. Well, we, we, do pay, we do pay our actors and our crew and everything else, but we pay them a little different. We pay them on a salary base rather than a per-project base, which saves money on one thing but gets that gets them locked in on a on on more credits, more viability, plus then they actually end up making more overall. Right. I mean, it's, it's just uh, I think it's a better system, really. Uh, it has the you know again everything's got to be perfect. I feel. Uh, is it hard to get people to agree with that? Because it seems like it can be complicated for some to to make that mentality change from when they've been in a like a, a major oh, motion picture. It, Believe it or not, it's not it's not getting the older people that have been in or or the more mature actors and things like that to get it. It's getting the young actors to get it. Right. It's because they have this fantasy that, oh, once they land a show, that they're golden. I mean, I, I have an actor um that was on a show for uh, he he started in the, sh- in the se- uh, show for three years of its five seasons. Or, uh, sorry, three seasons of its five-season run. And everybody's like, oh, my God, he's doing so great and all that. It's like, no, actually, that's, not, that's decent money, but it's not huge money. The money has transitioned dr- dramatically. 
And unless you're continually working, it's very difficult to to make ends meet or to really get ahead. I, it's just like our, our financial situation globally. It's you have the those that are making vast amounts and those that are just barely scraping by, and somewhere in the middle is the middle class that we've lost in the industry as well. But the new digital platforms and that, that's bringing back the middle class of film. And those actors that have been, I, I've got about 60 BNC list talent of name that are attached to, that I've got LOIs for, that are attached, letters of intent for those that don't know, um, that are attached to us, our slate of projects. And what's great about it is it wasn't a question of what the project was. It's a case of once they saw the quality of our writing, the quality of our shooting, and, and, and the creative input that they were allowed to do into the projects, and what they got out of it for so little investment, because we don't, we don't lock them down for huge days and all that. Our shooting days are average of 10 hours with eight hours actual production, and we're shooting 10 pages. And unlike a lot of crews, we're shooting three cameras with five audios. We don't do a lot of ADR, um, which is when you have to go back into the studio and record your audio over the top because yeah. it got blown out or something. It's We are actually doing real old-school camera work and making really high-quality high projects and visually impactful projects because of this. And these actors see this, and they know where they can see where the market went from and where it's going to. It used to be the sitcoms and the half-hour TV shows and those series-based formats, but now it's going to platforms like Netflix, Hulu, Vimeo, uh, iTunes, and and Amazon. That is really where the money is going. And getting on these series, it's not about one show. It's about a volume of shows. And if they can make a salary base and then make writing profits on each show that they're in and their IMDB increases, when the studios come along and instead of being you know, a $500 a day actor, they're all of a sudden a $5,000 a day actor because now they have the social media to back it up. They've got the following to back it up. And they can show that they are relevant to today's market. That's brilliant. No, I mean, I look at this. A, go ahead. No, it, it, it is I look at this, and it just seems like a real, just um, a fair way to get your name out there. And what I think about when I think about independent programs and TV shows and movies, I think um, as I've grown older, I've grown to appreciate the independent scene more. Um, I, I have to tell you that I think for most people, the idea of independent film and TV, you turn it on. And there's a, there's an automatic stigma to it, and you turn away from it. But uh, most definitely, and it's it. And I'll tell you the main reason why, it or the two main reasons. One is the medium frame. When a, when an indie filmmaker shoots, by standard, they shoot a medium frame because they have X amount. It, it used it, it was based on the old film philosophy of we've got X amount of feet to shoot with. We have to shoot this in this period of time. Studios could be a lot more liberal with with what they shot, but a a, 
an indie film had to shoot, whether it was Super 16 or, or whatever, they had to shoot everything that they could, but make sure that they got in close enough to get it. So it was this medium frame, so all indie film felt, had that same feeling, no matter whether it was action, drama, whatever. It was a medium frame with two people in it, with no real impact, no what they call money shots. Mm-hmm. Now with technology, if you, if you take the technology today and you apply a film shooting philosophy to it, where it's not go in and shoot and shoot and shoot kind of thing because you have an unlimited hard drive capability, you go in and you treat it like film, but you get in those close, intimate shots or you get those big vista shots and those enrich the film and that. And it's a macro and micro thinking, which I actually mentor directors on and writers in how to structure story to increase that the vastness and the, the true bigness of a project. And whether it's... I was just talking to somebody last night about a project they're working on. It's a short film, but a, it, it starts out as a standard indie film. It's a... You look at it and you know what's going to happen. It's a... It's a spoon-fed thinking. There is no suspense. There's no drama. There's no build-up. Okay. There's no cold opening style, which the studios use. And that's the difference is start with that and make your audience connect with the characters. And we have that capability with the technology. I mean, you can go out and spend $5,000 on a decent camera shooting 4K, a computer system to back it up, and a good audio recorder, and you can start making movies with that and have a solid 4K shootable project that can be actually distributed. You don't have to go crazy and spend I mean, $100,000 or $80,000 on Electra <laughs> and have 40 people on, on, on crew. It could be you, your buddy, and a few actors that want to do something, and you can make some projects. I, I was at the New Media Film Festival in a few years back with a director friend of mine, Jonathan Coco, who's also a partner in what I'm doing. And we're sitting in there, and they announced that it was the weirdest mix of, of projects. It was digital filming, and their examples were the iPhone and the Red Epic, I believe it was. Which I'm like, okay, this is kind of like one extreme to the other right. of, of filmmaking. And we're watching, they didn't say what film was what. That was what was funny about the thing. And there was like five different cameras used. Like there was a Canon, there was a Nikon, um, you know, the 5D series and things like that. We watched them and it was like, okay, that, that's that, that's that, that's that, that's that. The two that we actually thought were completely switched was this one guy went out and shot this project and we were sure this was the high production budget project that they spent a lot of money on because he, he takes and he fell out of a it's a running shot where he goes he's inside, he falls out a window into a dumpster and <laughs> it's this whole like series of events and we're like oh my god that, that's some amazing camera shooting with this red and then there was about 30 people up on uh, when, they, when the show was over or when they, the screens were over, they brought the cast up, and there's this one guy on the left by himself, and there's about 25 people to the right, 
And this other project was horrendous. It was unwatchable, in my opinion. Wow. Pretty liberal with finding a story and all that. But this thing was just insane over budget and horribly shot, horribly lit, horribly staged. The actors obviously didn't care about the script because they presented it like it was a dead fish. <laughs> and we found out that was the one that was shot with the red. Yep. And the guy had shot the entire thing by himself with his iPhone. Was a really nice, beautifully lit, whole other film, and and these guys had spent like fifty eight thousand dollars on this eight minute short, and he did this like five minute short, and he goes, oh, I think I spent two hundred dollars because I had to get a new case for my phone because I dropped it or something like that. It was like, what the hell? And it, it, all he had was his iPhone, and he he rigged up a uh, recorder. That was it. Wow. And it was it was it was amazing though. He really because he actually took and he stepped each process of filmmaking through his limited means, and he made it for all it was worth. And it was it was I it was funny because the the twenty plus cast and crew over on the other side weren't getting any questions. Everybody was lined up to ask the one guy questions. Yeah, he was like. Um, and they were, they'd start off asking the questions, and, like, and the other group would answer, and, oh, no, no, we're asking him. <laughs> <laughs> it, was quite, it, it was quite insane. And I was like, okay, that's somebody that later down the road we're going to have to work with. Yeah, Because whoa. he gets the true aspect of indie, the indie vision thinking, that we have the technology. We, I, the cameras now are shooting amazing high quality um, for very little money. Um, you get together with a buddy or two that have other pieces of equipment and you can make amazing projects as long as you have a well-developed story and you can get it in front of people that can present it, which are the actors. And that's what we do. Now, you we said it. Amazing stories drawn from, uh, from well-known writers, um, from if the award winners, New York Times best-selling adapted works, international bestsellers and that's what we're that's our starting point is to create that and it was just by going and asking people if they do it with us it's and amazing how many people say yes uh, the vast majority anymore it originally very few people couldn't wrap their minds around the idea at all they couldn't understand this I, I started this several years back before the digital market had really hit. The studios still are trying to figure out how to make money off the digital market. And to me, it's a clear, defined path. It's very easy to do so. And that's why we have the investors that we do. And that's why the actors in that are seeing it is they're going, oh, I get it now. Because the content wasn't there. The subscription bases weren't there for Netflix and, and Hulu and things like that. It's these, these new platforms had not leveraged up. They weren't getting $8 billion a year investment. And now, what is it? I think Netflix just closed another, like, $16 billion for new content, original content. Yeah, they're big into this, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, well, here's the thing. They cover two different aspects. And this is the key. This is, this is what a lot of people are looking at. I cover the micro-budget content development projects. 
the binge-watching content, the stuff, well, you're waiting for the next House of Cards episode to come out, and you're watching shows like IT Crowd and things like that, right. um, Video Game High School. I was just watching IT Crowd. <laughs> <laughs> and, and everybody does it. But those are, the, those are the things that, and people find the shows that they like in those. And it doesn't matter what they like, they'll find a show if they look hard enough. And each show will find an audience base big enough if it has enough people pumping through it. And that's what's nice about these digital platforms. There's a lot. It, but Go ahead. It's, it's amazing what is out there. But the key is, what's been lost is you now have the multi-million dollar episodes of House of Cards, and then you've got the IT crowd that can be shot for five, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 an episode. Right. I mean, what was it? Uh, um, the entire first season of Walking Dead was less than 750000 I think it was. Wow. I mean, that first episode was shot for pocket change because they didn't even, they weren't even sure if they had a real show. Yeah, no one knew if it was going to work. And they tested it and it blew up and they're like, oh, we got to put some money behind this thing. <laughs> yeah, they, they got money now. To, and, and how many seasons is it now? Yeah. Ten? I think they're seven. Twelve, something like that. <laughs> All right, yeah, so it's fine, but they're pumping them out, and they're, they're having spinoffs and, and things like that that people don't realize are, and that's all part of it. And it's all started off with these little tiny micro-budget formats that find an audience. And a micro-budget show is you can do a ton of episodes for very little as long as you think outside of the indie box. Yep. But with the with having a good face attitude of indie. Grassroots approach, finding an audience, feeding them general content on a on, or regular content on a general basis. Behind the scenes, extra trailers, special cuts, things like that, while you're interlacing each episode of the show. Keeping them informed of the progress. And then you have the integration of crowdfunding to start these projects off. Now, what, what I'm sick of on that is, on these big crowdfunding platforms like Indiegogo and Kickstarter, is the studio projects coming in and raping the indie spirit and the little bit of money that these projects could really use for, for their projects when they can go and go, okay, I want to get funded on this, and they have, I mean, some of them have production deals. And they've turned them down to go crowdfund when they didn't wow. need to. And they've raised yeah. millions, which, which rapes these little indie film projects. Sure. And that's why it's still a case of the old school of how you get a film going is you go to your mom, your dad, your favorite aunt, your, your uncle that loves you, and go, hey, can you help me out here? And then get a concept together, then start taking it to small businesses and things like that that potentially can invest, and then take it to the next level. And we have a lot of places that can do that. And you can start with a small crowdfunding thing if you have the social media capability and a team to build it, because it does take a team in all of this. It's not one person. I may be the voice of any film, but I'm not the only voice. And that voice is backed up by 1,500 crew, actors, and industry professionals. It's a great that believe in what I'm doing, 
that yeah. have said, when you're ready to move, I'm here for you. Because I worked my ass off, my partners have worked their asses off to make these pieces happen so that people could understand the vision. Yeah, it's really valuable when you get people to see that same vision with you and get them on board. You said a lot of things there that I think are important that I want to just go ahead and kind of break down for the listeners that may have that stigma themselves to indie film. Uh, you focused a lot of it on just how you do the filming. You kind of made made the point to where if you care about the film you're making, you make a good film versus people coming together as a big group, making this big fancy effort, and, and the movie sucked. Um that's one aspect of it. You touched on a little bit. What I found is when I stumble upon an independent film that looks like an independent film, what keeps me interested is, and this is your forte, and that is solid, solid writing. And again, the actors have to care. Um, I, I love I, the characters that are believable. Even if they're ridiculously obnoxious or insanely out of the box, they have to be believable and either you have to love them or hate them. They have to convey an emotion. Absolutely. And they have to be believable in the aspect of not to the real world, but to that story. They have to make sense to that story. I do think there's a demand for, for this, and I'll tell you why. I mean, again, we're seeing it more on Netflix. Is I remember in the 80s, <laughs> in the early 90s, um, I would turn on Showtime or HBO, and I would find an old movie that never got any kind of fanfare that no one watched and found, oh, this is a good movie. And a lot of times it might have been a lower-budget movie. And now you don't see that so much on HBO and Showtime and those channels. Now it's the same movie like ten times a day. And right, because they, they have a locked distribution deal, and they know that all they have to do is provide content. And until they're not making money, they're making money. <laughs> Good point. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, I want to ask you. A perfect example is one of the people that actually that mentored me in the old school philosophy of distribution and things like that is Bill Osco. And Bill shot, oh, two dozen features for $9.6 million combined budget. His movies have grossed over $300 million. And he'll wow. tell you that... He doesn't like some of his movies, but he know what he knew what would sell. And I, he had Pat Morita from The Karate Kid dressed up as Little Bo Peep in a back alley doing some weird shit, and it was hilarious. And it was, I, it's that, that was, uh, um, it was about the unknown comic, and it was called Night Patrol. Um, but one of his, I mean, one of his highest grossing is now still shown on Showtime. It's called Flesh Gordon. And it's a... Oh, it's a salt theme, it, right? <laughs> it, it is a very uh, 70s, 80s kind of uh, Porky's yeah. um, genre <laughs> film. And then he also did the X-rated musical, which was actually an R-rated. That's how they marketed it, uh, uh, version of Alice in Wonderland. Oh, boy. Both that sounds familiar. <laughs> what was funny was Flesh Gordon actually was nominated for an Academy Award in special effects. It was? They don't even have that award anymore for special effects. Wow. It was nominated for special effects. And the people that worked on that are now some of the biggest names in the industry. Same with, with Alice in Wonderland. And it was, I mean, he's worked with some amazing ones and helped them drive their careers because he thinks outside of the box. Absolutely. And it's, <laughs> that's what's funny about it is both of those movies were the highest growth scene 
Flesh Gordon grossed $98 million when tickets at a theater were like a buck and a quarter, a buck and a half. $98 million in theater sales. Wow. Both of them have grossed over $100 million total, DVDs, things like that. And I, two dozen projects shot for 9.6 with merchant, or with, with the valuation of over 300 gross. That's pretty damn impressive. Wow. And that's some of the philosophy that I took to the Indie Vision project. Just I didn't take his story ideas. I actually, I mean, we have some very emotional stuff. Uh, one of our stories um, is about a 12 year based on a true story about a 12 year old girl that steals her parents skiff and goes to Catalina from Newport by herself to get a bottle of liquor to get drunk so she understands her mother's alcoholism and abusive relationship that's interesting and then we also have things like <laughs> zombies in recovery which is a <laughs> um, about after the zombie apocalypse yeah. um, and trying to reintegrate society Part zombies back into society. Now these are entries, and we're actually. Huh? These are entries into your indie project. Yeah, this is actually we're getting ready to shoot the sizzle reel on that one. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's uh, but we have I, we did two dudes on a couch, which for the first oh, ten or fifteen minutes of the movie, we tell you not to watch the movie. <laughs> then we make fun of our own movie. Then we make fun of how studios do movies just like this and, and take it seriously. And then, <laughs> then it's about these guys pitching story ideas that are so outlandish. And what's funny is they're all kind of based upon real projects that have been pitched <laughs> in a way. Wow. And that have actually been made or that. But you listen to this outlandish aspect, and then at the end, we tell you, yeah, we warned you not to watch this movie, but it's... It's now finding a uh, nice little um, indie niche of people that it's it's almost becoming a cult classic of its own, called Two Dudes on a Couch. And we actually have um, a series that we're doing around it and everything else. Wow. And, and it's got, I mean, we shot that for a 13.5, and the valuation on it is 454000 So that's wow. a nice little markup. And all the actors and crew that were on it are going to share in that money when it releases. Well, so let me so. ask you something here, because you, you've taken this a little bit. Not only have you adapted this philosophy, you're sharing this philosophy. I've experienced this personally with you. You like to look out for the other people, which is cool because it's hard to trust anybody in the industry. Yeah. Um, so th- this, is, this kind of wraps into the whole indie project thing. You're, you're trying to mentor and help people Get, make their dreams and their uh, their projects a reality. It's I want to change the world on a much grander level. I want to. It's I I I make fun of all the racism, bigotry, and and sexism and all this other stuff because I think it's just so ridiculous. Yep. It's just I, I can't. My mind refuses to understand it, and it, so. My favorite way to work on something I don't understand is to make fun of it because it literally doesn't make sense. Somebody has a little more of one thing in their skin and it makes them darker. And all of a sudden that makes them a different person, like a different 
or less of a person they say we're all humanity we're all human there's no difference in this aspect or or because somebody wants to sleep with the same sex who gives a crap you know, I, I compare it often to uh, leeches. Uh, doctors back in the old days would put leeches on people to solve diseases, and that was silly. Well, actually, and we leeches are, that. Le- believe it or not, leeches actually make sense because they still use them today during transplants. All right, but we don't use them for everything, though. <laughs> no, they, but the thing is, that's the thing. We don't use them for everything, but it's it's. <laughs> but in today's society, it's. We stereotype everything. Yeah, nothing's broken and down. So, it's all, yeah. But what's great about stereotyping is by using it in comedy, we show how sarcastically idiotic it truly is. Absolutely. And I like that. It's, I, what's funny is when most of the scripts that I've sold, I don't tell people what characters or what the character is. I give them a name or something sometimes, but I don't even tell... I don't tell them, unless it's a specific, specifically targeted character mm-hmm. that needs a race, creed, color, age, sex, I don't necessarily specify a lot of the characters because there's no need to. Hmm. So my scripts end up being a lot more diverse than most people's. Just by default? It's, yeah. It's just draw from humanity. I. A friend of mine, he, um, he, he's a very short, I'm very short, I think he stands 5'1", five, 5'2", five, black, very openly gay, flamboyant gay, skinny, perky guy. Right. He showed up. They were doing a casting call for a college spoof, and, it's, and it was, took place at a sorority. And they were looking for a blonde sorority-type cheerleader. And he went in and applied for the audition for the job. And what's funny is he's the only... I, everybody else did, was exactly what they were looking for. Right. He went in completely off the books and literally took their train off the rails. <laughs> he didn't even make it out of the lobby before he had the job. Wow. That, that's what you do. And they yeah. rewrote the entire role for him. That's awesome. They shot the thing, and it's it's still in somebody's closet. I don't think it's ever been released. Uh, I saw it, and it was... He blew it away. It was hilarious. But because... I asked him why he did it. He goes, I didn't have anything else to do that day. It was an audition. <laughs> and honestly, I didn't look at the, tight, at, at the cast that they were looking for. It was... Um, it, it said something like, he goes, I looked at the description, it was perky, peppy, and somebody that really was with a ball of fun. <laughs> and that's how he <laughs> didn't look at what the rest was, and he just went in and auditioned. Awesome. Goes, I felt kind of a little odd, he goes, but I played it up. And and it was funny because it was a, it's, it was a formal casting. They had everybody in the room except for the producer and the director who was on, ca- or was watching through a camera. And they watched it, they recorded it and all that. And he heard, the, he said when he stopped, nobody said anything. It was dead silent. <laughs> and he said, thank you. Scene, thank you very much. He gave him the paperwork and walked off. <laughs> and the phone was ringing before he left the room. 
everybody's phone was ringing, and it was the producer and director and all their assistants trying to get hold of these people to stop him and and say he had the job. Wow. And they were like, yeah. And it was, but nobody in the room, everybody was horror-struck, and the casting agent actually took him aside and said, I thought you were going to get me fired. <laughs> but wow. he just blew the roll away. It was, and it was, they, I, that's the dynamic of change that you can do by just not doing what is expected. Yes, I love it. By following the herd, but by setting a better example. Um, there's a lot of scammy people in this industry, as you'll know. Oh, oh yeah. It's, scares um, me. <laughs> and there's a lot of people, there's a lot of producers that claim to be producers, and all they do, they've never produced a project in their life, and they hop from project to project and make that project, spend money on them, and they, all they do is they sap it for funds hmm. while they do nothing except live a producer's lifestyle, hmm. but never producing. And they'll jump from project to project. They'll be on 10 or 15 different projects as a producer, but they'll never have actually... None of the projects will move forward because they'll drain them for all they're worth. And that's and a lot of indie films makers, they end up getting suckered by these guys oh. that aren't doing anything. Yeah, and they think thanks. that they have to do this because they need this person. You don't need anybody. It's a case of there are... There are thousands of everybody's out there. You need to find people that you believe in, that can show you what they're doing, that are willing to put the effort into your project as much as you are. And nobody will ever actually be as dedicated to your project as you will be. Absolutely. They will definitely be willing to make an example of how much effort they are willing to put. And by doing so, it drives the entire project forward. When you can keep collecting people around you, and those people go, this is amazing, let me make a call, just a call, because it's that a call that triggers something. Everybody talks about, I was sitting at my desk when I got that call. Yeah. And that was their breakout, or that was how they sold their first script, or that was how they signed an A-lister or whatever else. And that's another thing that I'll go on on about, is not signing A-listers to indie projects. (laughs) The insanity of of trying to. Um, But the key is, by surrounding yourself with positive people that believe that the project can happen, and by just not taking no no is not a a, a no is to me like no I can't do it right now or no you don't have enough pieces in place or no it's not a case of no I'm not there's no way it's no you just haven't got it quite where I need it to be and most people stop selling a project after one no they don't go back for the third but it's the eighth, ninth, or tenth no that turns into a yes. That's what people don't get. You keep going back and you keep marketing to the same people, and same people, same people, and keep opening that communication up. And I mean, if, if you're like me, it takes years to close funding. I, and these are from people that come to me and offer me funds. Hmm. And it's I've got small investors that 
need a few grand here, a few grand there to drive something forward. Fantastic. Uh, perfect example, I'm getting ready to shoot a sizzle reel on a, uh, on a project that is, takes place in Washington. We're shooting the initial piece down here and some up there. And it's the, my, my manager actually said, no more. You're either doing this or we're not. <laughs> it's this delay is not working. And the guy, and it was a case of, you know, the old saying of shit or get off the pot. Um, and that's, the guy was like, fine. And he went down and he got $5,000 for, to start up. And it's like, okay, great. Now we have, we can put the package together and get it to the distributors. And then he's going, oh, by the way, I just found out that's what the investors were waiting for. I'm like, oh, geez, you had investors? <laughs> you have to be willing to invest your time, energy, and effort, plus a few bucks, into driving your career. It's like buying business cards. Sure. I, how many filmmakers uh, I know that don't even have business cards or a website are, are out there is the vast majority. I, it, it doesn't take much. It's put your name and a phone number and an email address on a card. It, you don't even have to put what you're doing. Or you can write filmmaker or, or writer or producer or put the title or whatever project. Just put it on the back. Yeah. It doesn't matter. As long as they have your contact information. And you can print it at home. 5,000 business cards. Go down to Office Depot. They're like 20 bucks. Yeah. Or 500 business cards, I mean. It's like 20 bucks. And most filmmakers don't even have that. And the problem, the reason is that indie filmmakers don't approach indie filmmaking as a business. They approach it as an art form. And that's the number one mistake. They don't, they have hmm. this big concept and they chase money, but they have no way to get the money back to the investors. That's a bigger picture. Yeah. And that's what they have to look at. So... Is how... Approach it from a business aspect of what is your market? Is it Netflix? Is it the theater? What? Because you're not going to get a start off with a point of you're not going to get an indie film into theaters, period. That's your starting point. Start with, okay, we're going to put a trailer on YouTube and build a social media audience. Then from there, once it gets popular, we're going to keep doing updates when we can, we're going to do a crowdfunding, raise enough for next episode. And then Video Game High School is a perfect example of this, and leverage up until, boom, now they're on Netflix. That's awesome. Yeah. It, it's a, I like and it. that's the thing. That's, that's how you do it. I like it. And these, these guys, they spend all this money trying to chase A-listers in that when they could put 10 or 15 B-listers in for the same money, and actually distributors will like that better than one A-lister. Because they know all those names allow them a lot more mar uh, a lot more um, distribution uh, capabilities and viability. I want to ask so, you, and and there's a lot of talent that would love to work on any project that you might have. You just have to find the right talent with the right project. I want to ask you because I think you're very passionate about the ind the independent scene, and uh, I think that's why you have so many people willing to work with you. I see you have a lot of projects coming up with a lot of the same people around you, which is a, a good nucleus to build. Um, do you see yourself sticking with this always? Or if a Sony or some big movie company comes to you and says, hey, I want to sign you on exclusively to make movies for me for this 
amount of dollars, what, what do you do with that? They can't afford me. Wow. <laughs> no, no price on they, what you do. They, they can't. It's. Let me, I, I know what my company is worth. I know what I'm doing is worth. Not just to me, but to the people that I'm working with. And you built it. So, it, it's not just that. It's I know the intricacies and I know all the pieces. And it's I'm not going to betray that trust that these people have in me. That's awesome. I'm not for sale. You Great. buy my scripts, you may buy my projects, but I'm not for sale. Love it. All right, good deal. And, and it's these actors and that are not for sale. You can rent their talents, you can rent their skills, just like you can with me. But we're not for sale. And that's the key. It's I I've been offered money for my companies. I, a perfect example is I know the value of Maxit. I was offered a million dollars before it actually started. We were getting ready to launch, and I was offered a million dollars for my company, and wow. I turned it down. And it's, it's not about the money. It's because I knew that any film needed a voice, and I knew what this company wanted to do with it. And it wasn't give any film a voice. Right. It was use it for leveraging to talk about the big money indie films, which are not big money indie films like Fox Searchlight films. Those are not indie films. Now, Fox Searchlight leverages, it's a great avenue if you're going the general circulation and distribution routes. It's a great format to leverage up to the game, but it's not the only route. You don't have to go through a studio in the old school aspect of the Big Ten or anything. And if it has Fox on it, it is, it, it, no matter if they add Searchlight or whatever, it's still Fox. It's still the major right. players. And you don't necessarily need them. Yes, if they come along and offer you money for a project, and it's more than what you've spent, take it and run, and then <laughs> say, what other projects can I get for you? I got gotcha. you. And then go out and do the projects your way. Take that money and leverage it, because now you've made money for your investors, and they're going, holy crap, this guy can sell some stuff, or this woman can sell some stuff. And that's what they want. They want... It's not that you make them a lot of money. It's that you continually make them a little money on their money. That's all they want. They don't want to be dumping money into a 5 or $10 million film because there's no market for it. If it's not $25 million or above, the odds are very limited that unless it's below like two and a half, you're not going to make any money. And the closer you can get to the 100000 or a quarter million, I would say, and below budget, the better off you are in profitability for your investors. And by taking care of your investors, most people don't understand. By taking care of your investors, you're taking care of your cast and crew. Because when you make your investor money, they give you more money to go and shoot another project, which allows you to pay your cast and crew to shoot another project, which keeps them working. And the more money you make your investors, the more projects you and your group can shoot, and everybody make money. And this explains why you had the same nucleus a lot of times. What was that? This explains why you got a lot of the same people hanging around for more projects that you've had in your in your experiences. Well, it's, trust me, they're not hanging around. They're they are these people are very active in what we're doing and very right, right. behind the scenes ways. Um, uh, I didn't mean that derogatory wise, though. No, so. I know. No, 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 I know. It's like. 
you know, it's it's actually I do have some that are just hanging around. <laughs> I swear, some of them are just wondering when the other shoe's going to drop, kind of thing. Right. Um, because and because every time I call them, they're like, "Okay, here it is, here it is," and then I just give them some more good news, and they're like, "Son of a bitch!" <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, um, or it's, "Hey, we've got this," and you know, and some of them are waiting because it does take. Some of them have been waiting a while for for funding on projects to close because we start out with a concept. We put some pieces together, and then I present it. And then I get feedback from my distributors, from investors, on, and they go, up. Oh. And, and they say no. Then I go, okay, what else do you need with it? And then I go and get that. And then I present it, and then they go, ah. And, then, and I keep presenting it until it's ready for them. And they'll tell me when it's ready. Now, and and it and it's that's the pain in the butt for part of this whole process is waiting for the money. But if you sit there and wait for the money, you'll never get the money. You have to actively drive the project forward. Keep putting pieces in place. Keep adding the right talent. Bring on better crew and equipment, and and develop pieces out. Work, you know. Find the right people to do the right things. Transition people from one place to another on different projects and, and hook them into other projects that they can get paid for so they stay dedicated to yours as well. Because the biggest thing about this industry is do for others first in the hopes that they will do for you. And keep doing for others and doing for others and doing for others until it's exhausting. And then you're almost at the point of having done enough just to get them to do for you a little bit. So go that little extra mile. Every time you think it's it's there, every time you think you need to stop, take a breath and then continue off. Because when you actually do stop, you're one step away from the actual success that you're seeking. I mean, it's, it can be a... And when you start when you start working on a project like what I'm working on, it can be very lonely, very exhausting, and very mind-numbing at times. And you'll want to pull the world in on top of you. And the key is, that's when you take a little bit of a break and look at what you've done and start going through a procedural look at Okay, what can I do for this piece? Not because too many people try to eat the entire elephant at once. You need to go back and go, okay, now what's the next small bite that I can take that will optimize what I'm doing and push it so that all of a sudden you get a pre-production deal by some distributor going, you know what, I like that. Here's $50,000, go make it. And you're <laughs> going, fantastic, I only needed 25000 <laughs> No, we're not saying that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't, you don't ever tell them that you didn't need that. It's, take the money. Take, it's, they're giving you the money, take the money. It's do the project. Make the money back for them. They're not going to wonder where the 25000 went because they know that you're driving them the next project because you just paid your crew a little bit extra. You paid your cast a little bit extra. Say, hey, you know, you took them out for one extra dinner uh, instead of instead of uh, the old rubber chicken or <laughs> the pizza. You took them actually to a nice dinner. Right. And and you bumped up production because 
now you can add this beautiful beach scene at this hotel, and you rented three drones for this amazing motorcycle chase that you couldn't afford before. So the money will always go somewhere, as long as it drives the value of the production together and keeps the crew and cast happy. All right, so keep the crew and cast happy. Uh, next oh, Thursday, we continue here with uh, with Scott Brown talking about his independent film. Uh, but uh, more importantly, uh, we're going to shift uh, subjects a little bit to his project with Belly Bean, the children's story and TV series he's working on. Uh, you can go to Indiegogo.com to see his project on Belly Bean and how you can help with that and all the great things he's doing with that. Plus, next week, we'll talk about uh, the uh, the Indie Vision uh, project we're talking about. Uh, so about the beginning of the show, the Indie Vision project. So you can enter your movie scripts and your screenplays, and maybe make them a reality and make them a reality with some great actors and great uh, so some great staff that uh, Scott Brown will provide as part of that. You know, part of the winnings for that. Uh, so that's all next week. Tomorrow on this very show on the Friday Extra Scientology Edition. A little interesting. Uh, Interesting move here. I'm going to have Dave LaCroix from uh, uh, from Scientolopedia on the show. Uh, we recorded it yesterday. We did have a, an amical conversation uh, talking about the study of independent Scientology and where uh, he stands with it, um, how he still believes in uh, that Oren Hubbard was a great man and, and his opinion on things and, and why he does what he does in – uh, believes what he believes. So it's going to be a lot of uh, great questions and answers that you're all going to enjoy. I think basically everything I was ever, I'd ever want to ask a Scientologist who's active in the church today but can't, or I can ask it to Dave, and Dave will give some semblance of an answer to most of us. So look forward to that tomorrow. Of course, I'm going to vent. Got a lot of things to talk about tomorrow and say. Uh, but for now, have a great day, everybody. That about sums it up. All the spot analysis. Am I crazy? Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Are we on a podcast? Yeah. I, I think I'm going to come get some. If you want some, come. Gotta get that. Gotta get dipped. Gotta get dipped. Oh, oh, oh. My Appreciate favorite, it. though. Am I? You're my favorite. Oh, thank you yeah. so much. I, I think not. You put me on the e-meter and ask me a question, and the needle would float.